36. The good news is, Frank Furness is a fucking gent. He told me he weren't going to report me for thieving his wallet. It don't mean he still ain't a fucking tosser. He says he can't work out how a sweet face like the one I got can hide such a miserable scumbag beneath. He gargles his insults in Glaswegian, like someone's just cut his fucking throat. Someone should. I will grant, though. Furness has reasons for his hissy fits and fumings. In the end, we did a bargain. The bargain was, so long as I don't tell no one what I done, he won't tell no one neither. Here's what I think. I think Mr. Furness don't want people finding out how the likes of me lifted his bits and pieces in front of his grisly nose without him even sniffing. Cause knowing exactly what a numpty he is makes him feel sore and bruised. The trouble is, Mr. Furness ain't worked out how he's such a wanker. Maybe this will come to him and the world will be a safer place again. Are you a wanker? There ain't no shame in it. So long as you know you're a wanker, you can hold your head up. Or would you deny categorically that you're a wanker? Can I ask something technical? When people deny their crimes against humanity categorically, does this have a special meaning in law? Is there something gory in it, or is it something to do with cats? Because no one round here seems to know. Your views would be most welcome. That done with, I must now return to my side of the story. Where I left it was, I never once categorically admitted to Furness how I thieved his wallet. What I said to him was what a fucking gent he is for agreeing not to report me. I promised I would keep his secrets grave. What I did not categorically let on was how I already shown my mates the porny pics he keeps in his wallet for rainy days. Nor did I say nothing about the wadge of cash he had tucked away, which I'd been using to pay my owings for the drugs I bought for old time's sake. But I don't suppose you care about my escapades with Furness. You would rather know about how I come across my much cleverer sister against all the odds. Very well then, we will proceed with that side of my side of the story. The way it goes is this. The men in white brought me back to life. They'd done this using medical science. Meanwhile, praise be, the good Lord is getting his own miracles ready for me. I got bored being mollycoddled in hospital. Then the social comes along, and that was enough to make me do a runner. I nicked everything I could pack into a bedsheet. I went off to the streets. I didn't go looking for Scarlet straight away. I didn't know how. You don't go banging on random doors. That would be bonkers. I may be out of control, but I ain't bonkers. 
You might chuckle when I tell you what my plan was. It was to make sure Marley, Godwin, and Jenny whatever had nothing to do with each other ever again. Because not only was Jenny whatever bonkers, she was dead. I found things out. I found out that once you start saying what your real name is, things turn upside down. More than that, you get to become someone completely different. I loved the sound my new name made. Marley Godwin, Miss. Trouble is, I also found out that living like scum weren't going to get Marley Godwin, Miss nowhere quickly in a handcart. Then I found out Marley didn't even need to score Dazzle. Not only because she didn't need to forget who she was in a drug haze, but the drugs never done nothing to her, even after she took loads. The other thing I found out was how blokes was coming on like the clappers. This never happened before. I discussed it with veterans who know all about the science of blokes. These were girls who could be clever clogs. What they said was, there is two schools of thought, which is a clever clog's way of giving yourself more guesses so you get more chances of being right. One school of thought is, there was always blokes ready to get into my knickers, only I was too dosed up to give a fuck. This might not be wrong. The other school of thought is, being cooped up in hospital, getting regular cooked meals and plenty of sleep worked its wonders. This might not be wrong neither. After a spell in bed, a girl could walk out of hospital looking halfway decent. But I looked more than halfway decent. I looked the business. All I needed to finish the job was take myself to a salon and get myself beautified. I could add my own school of thought. Does that happen to you, when so many schools of thought crowd round at once? My old friend, Rope, sang a song about how thoughts was like so many fishes. Either they don't come, or they come along in buses. His song goes, There's so many fishes in the pot, You can only land a couple, and that's your fucking lot. I don't suppose you do fishing. Nor do I. Too slimy. Ropes was keen, though. But he was thick as builder's planks. Only, there I go, sketchy as ever, flitting on about the stupid songs Ropes sung when all you want to know is what my own school of thought was when it comes to blokes. Fine. What I will say is this. The blokes would come on to me once I got out of hospital was not like the dross I carried on with before I went in. It used to be that only drug dealers and pimps could put Jenny whatever down to expenses. After she was quaffed and tartified, Marley Godwin only had to pop over to Piccadilly to get free cocktails and a sit-down meal thrown in. It is scientifically proved that 90% of blokes in central London are totally minted and smell like puddings. They don't need grudges. They don't even carry weapons. So rolling in it are these blokes that they will buy you frocks and trinkets just to be able to walk to the shops with you. 
I know this, because an especially fragrant bloke called Danny Zografos explained it to me. He said, according to the theory of revolution, there ain't nothing a minted bloke won't do for a beautified female. Not only that, it was down to the theory of revolution that I could lift myself out of poverty by thieving all I needed from sweet-smelling central London blokes with bling. I could do this in ways that never bothered them. Blokes would hand over their best bits and pieces and do it laughing. All I had to do was smile back and look ready for business. It was down to the theory of revolution that I moved in with Danny Zoggers. His flat in Bloomsbury was nicely pointed. It had its own jacuzzi. It had its 42-inch telly and its king-size bed. From the balcony there was splendid views of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. If you wondered what they got up to during the week, you've come to the right beautified female. They do soap products made from stuff they find lying about in jungles. It's all down to the theory of revolution. As the Zogs was fond of saying, most days, someone's got to find out what to do with coconuts. By the way, the Zogs was a high-class financier, which means everything he said was wise and true. My way with names made him chuckle. I called him the Zogs in company. I called him the Zogs in bed. In bed, he told me I felt different from all the other females he ever touched up. I liked him because he was hairy and big. Not only his head, but his belly, his mouth, and mostly his wallet. All of these was extra large and open all hours. The Zogs was conniving, too. He rubbed perfume in his hair. He told me this is how ungainly blokes make you look at them. He never used too many unknown words, like Scarly. What he did was talk shitloads all at once. When I tell you his mouth was always going even more than mine, you will have pity. It got so as I could count the gold in his teeth. He mostly said about creeping up from behind and chewing the heads off competition. Whatever he was doing, it sounded like the Zogs done it in jungles. Being a bloke, he was fond of saying, means letting the ladies know how much bling you got. He told me he makes his bling using high-class financing, which is survival of the richest. What it boils down to is, the Zogs liked my figure, and I liked his figures. End of. According to the theory of revolution, that is all it takes to make the perfect match. But I'm flitting hither again. You must be thinking, get a move on Marley. It's all right, I'm coming. But I will mention this to you first. Passing as his role in my side of the story is, Remembering the Zogs is loads of fun to do. Do you get that? When someone in your life makes no odds, only you find yourself thinking about them anyways? What's important is, while the Zogs spent all his time in the office tearing the heads off gazelles, I didn't do fuck all. 
One day he says to me, I looks idle. Cheeky, but nice. So we goes to the shops. He buys me this new laptop. I pinched a few before, only I was clueless how to use one. I thought about taking my new laptop down the pub and swapping it for cash. But I didn't need no cash. So I learns how to switch it on. In no time, I was getting free email accounts. I could do streaming all day. I did nosing through social medias. Also, every time the whim took me, I was clicking on shoes and other goods with the Zog's platinum card. One day, I'm round the corner at Tony's, sipping mugs of tea. My laptop is on, notifying this and that. All was well with the world when, would you believe it, I fell off my stool with a shriek. I blasphemed so loud, one of Tony's boys tells me to pack my laptop and fuck off. You can guess how I was searching for any Godwins out there. Thanks to Tony's free Wi-Fi, you can guess how all of a sudden I found my sister out of thin air. But it weren't finding Scarlet Godwin that was so totally insane. It's the pictures what made me flip. We looked totally and utterly the same. All we can say, based on the evidence, is that after a five-year absence, Charlotte landed back on Louise's doorstep. So much had changed for the worst. It wasn't simply the return of a self-destructive nature. It was the fallout from years of destruction already well underway. Charlotte would sit on the sofa, watching programs late into the night, sipping from a continually refilled glass. She didn't want to speak with anyone. She didn't want to go out. These were traits she'd struggled with all her life, but never to the extent that she couldn't socialize, or at least appear fun-loving. By day, she would sleep till lunchtime. During the afternoons, she would try to write. She'd taken to the habit of keeping the notebook that would fall into our hands and using it on a daily basis. During this period, her efforts at writing poetry were rarely successful. She told Louise that every failed attempt at a poem brought out a gloom that could only be brightened by the prospect of drinking something alcoholic. If they discussed the success of her breakthrough poem, Forgery of a Young Woman, it was only so that Charlotte could dismiss it as having no real consequence. Like you, Louise couldn't help leaping to the assumption that Charlotte had had an abortion. But Charlotte gave no hint that she'd been writing about herself in the poem and was unwilling to go into any detail. The name Julius Haft came up in conversation. It wasn't possible for Louise to explore this, though, without provoking a poisonous exchange. Louise suggested counselling. One day, at the umpteenth mention of that word, Charlotte stormed out of the flat. 
Hours later, she returned in an even more morose and unapproachable condition. Whatever the problem was, it remained undefined for many weeks. Louise had no way of making it any less amorphous. Increasingly, Charlotte shut herself off from any discussion about what had happened to her during the missing years. As such, Louise could only imagine the worst. She'd begun to suspect that the pregnancy, if that's what it was, may have been the result of a rape. It came to a point when Louise was afraid of trying to help. It made her desperate. As the patterns of her companion's dysfunctional behavior became more apparent, she realized that if she couldn't change Charlotte, she might at least try to change herself. This came as an epiphany. It would be an unforgiving, unrelenting process, but Louise instinctively felt that it would be better to allow Charlotte to slide rather than to judge or control her. It meant acting as if nothing was wrong. No longer did she complain about Charlotte's drinking or her apathy. She didn't try to encourage a more positive approach. It felt like a form of masochism, but Louise no longer did anything to try to improve Charlotte's condition. Rather, she made an active effort to live her life as though it didn't matter that Charlotte was squandering hers. They had meals together. They binged television series together. They were civil to one another. They even drank together. Louise tried to drink as much as Charlotte. This may have been reckless, but it wasn't entirely futile. It brought them closer in ways that trying to clamp down on Charlotte's alcohol abuse might not have permitted. On the 19th of September, 2017, at Charlotte's insistence, they went to the police station together to make a complaint about Julia's haft. Louise felt rewarded for all the effort she'd made to give Charlotte space to find her own solutions. She was excited at Charlotte's resolve to speak to the police and anxious to know what haft had done to her. But this wasn't to be. The female officer looking after Charlotte told Louise to wait in a corridor. She waited for two hours while Charlotte registered her complaint in another room. Charlotte seemed buoyed by the experience. She hadn't been so animated since turning up at Louise's door. They went for a pizza in Brixton. It was the first time Charlotte was able to speak less guardedly about what had happened. She told Louise that this man, Haft, was a control freak. He treated people as if they were experiments. She portrayed him as a psychopath who had lured her with his charisma into a trap where everything had to be measured, analyzed, and labeled. She may have walked into that trap, but she'd managed to escape from it, she said. When Louise began to understand that Charlotte's relationship with Haft had always been consensual, she struggled with a perverse sense of disappointment. She recalls leaning over her pizza, not willing to believe it, demanding to know if Haft had ever been sexually violent. Charlotte's response was as puzzling as her silence had been before. She told Louise to stop being ridiculous. Haft was a professor. He was rich. He didn't need to use force to get what he wanted. He either paid for it or he schemed and manipulated until it was given to him. 
It was inevitable that Louise should treat this response to her question as evasive. But she no longer felt confident that her guesses about what had happened were accurate. This feeling Louise had, that she might have been mistaken about her assumptions, was reinforced when they found out that the police had no intention of arresting Professor Haft. Charlotte couldn't reach the female officer she'd spoken to originally. It was a male colleague who eventually returned her calls. He confirmed that the gentleman had been spoken to informally. He had denied harassing Charlotte in any way. Charlotte was amazed that the police had believed him, but the officer explained that it wasn't a question of believing the gentleman. It was simply that no further action would be necessary, because Haft had undertaken, in writing, not to make any further contact with Charlotte. The officer said that any further contact would definitely lead to an arrest, and very likely a prosecution. This set Charlotte back so much that she had a relapse. For three days, all she could speak about was the ineptitude of the police. She felt that her life had been put in danger. She was certain Haft would come after her to avenge himself. Her ranting was fueled to exhaustion by a haze of alcohol and sleeplessness. Louise did everything she could. She listened, she consoled, but she couldn't help thinking that Charlotte's problem was as imagined as her torment was self-inflicted. As soon as Charlotte began to fantasize that the Secret Services had somehow blocked the police investigation, and that's why Half had never been arrested, Louise couldn't bring herself to listen anymore. Tempers were frayed on both sides when Charlotte finally collapsed into bed. She slept for 24 hours. Louise was at her own emotional limit. She needed time to recover. In quiet moments, she practiced delivering an ultimatum, starting with the words, Enough is enough. She tried imagining what it would be like telling Charlotte that she would either have to go away forever or go see a doctor. When Charlotte did emerge from her stupor, she seemed aware that things had gone too far. She didn't exactly apologize for her behavior, but she did feel the need to tiptoe around Louise. She was sheepish in a way that Louise had never seen before. She made unremarkable comments. The golden light outside was wonderful. Autumn was her favorite time of year. For the first time ever, Charlotte asked if she might do the ironing. They were holding hands on Louise's sofa. Louise was about to express her overly rehearsed thoughts, beginning with the words, Enough is enough when Charlotte said that she was thinking of moving back to Cambridge. She told Louise that she needed a fresh start. She asked Louise to help her find a property. When she finished speaking, they were both in tears, hugging tightly. <laughs>